About eight years ago, I went to Cuba to teach a course on the Bible, and I went with a couple of other pastors, and uh, the schedule was we would teach in the morning, and then in the afternoons, we'd either have meetings with church leaders, or we would tour different places, and one afternoon, we went to a small town, and we toured a seminary, and uh, right next to the seminary was a baseball field. And our guide knew some of the coaches that were coaching these two teams who were scrimmaging at the time. And so we went down, uh, I thought, to watch. About 10 minutes into watching, our guide says, hey, they want you to be the umpire. Now, it's probably been 15 years since I've watched a baseball game. Uh, I haven't played baseball since I was 10 years old, and I have certainly never been the umpire for baseball. But when you're the honored guest there, you do what they ask you to do. So I went and uh, got behind the plate, and first pitch comes in, and I know enough that, right, the strike zone is knees to chest, right? The ball looked over the plate, it looked, looked between those area, in that area, that strike zone, so I said, strike! And the kid looks at me, bewildered. He looks at his coach, and his coach kind of shrugs. And I think, oh, no. So I start praying, Lord, just have him hit the ball. But they're not swinging. I'm having to say, strike, out, safe. I don't know. Finally, the one team is done. They they switch sides. The other team comes up to bat. First kid up. I call him out. The coach starts yelling at me, pointing. Okay, sorry. Finally gets over. Mercifully, they take me out after one inning. I think it's over. Uh, But the plan was for uh, Sunday morning for each of us three pastors to preach at a different house church. So we get in the bus. I'm the first one off or the van and uh, go to this house church. I got a translator with me. We knock on the door. Man opens the door. It's that coach from the team. Invites me in. Immediately starts giving me the business. I said, oh, man, I'm sorry. I, I don't know that, how to be an umpire. That's not my job. If you want a preacher, I'm a preacher. That's what I do. And that's what I'm here to do. You know, there is a really important question that every pastor and every church leader needs to answer from time to time, which is this. What is the job of the church. What's the church's job? And the way that we answer that question will determine a lot about where we spend our time and energy and resources. What is the church's job? Is it, is it the church's job to solve the homelessness crisis? Is it the church's job to educate children? Is it the church's job to lobby Congress and get laws passed and the right people elected? Is it the church's job to plant more churches? Now, the book of Acts gives us a picture of the early church. And it helps us to see how they answered the question, what is the church's job? Now, the passage we're going to read at the end of Acts chapter 2, comes right after that event known as Pentecost. 
That's the event where the Holy Spirit came with power upon the church. Now, we sing a song called King of Kings that has this line that says, And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. That is what happened at Pentecost. The Spirit came with power and ignited a new era of the church. It's kind of like when uh, they do a space shuttle launch, right? And they start up the engines and fire blows out everywhere and knocks over the stanchions. And it's, it's awesome to see. And this is, Pentecost was really the first New Testament revival and really kind of a blueprint for every revival since. And 3,000 people were added uh, to the church that day. What an awesome start. But then what happened? What happened the day after Pentecost? And the day after that? And the day after that? After all the, the fireworks and the miracles, what did ordinary life in the church look like? Well, if you were able, please stand We're going to read and get a picture of that church in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We learn about Christian community from these verses. And the first thing that we learn is that Christian community has some essentials. Now, verses 42 and 47 give us the four basic building blocks of the church. These are the things that the early church devoted themselves to. And you know what? Those building blocks really have not changed in 2,000 years. In fact, the New Testament makes it pretty clear that all believers everywhere and every time should practice these things. Devote ourselves to them. And if, and if you don't do those things, you may not be a biblical church. Okay, so what are they? Well, the first build, basic building block is authoritative teaching. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, who are the apostles? The apostles were those men who had been with Jesus, been entrusted by him with the gospel message, and specially appointed to be the beginning, the building blocks of the church. And it was their job to teach that message, but also to train future pastors and teachers also to teach it. What this means is that our church should be a learning church, that we should devote ourselves to learning the faith, to studying God's word. Now, say, Pastor, does that mean I have to learn theology? Yes. Now, 
course, the word theology is really kind of a fancy word for just the study of God. That's literally what it means. And you, no, you do not need to become an expert in every issue of every theological issue. But you do need to study God, right? Every Christian should learn as much as they can about who God is, what he has done, what he wants us to do. That's the basic Christian life. Learning the Bible's not just for pastors and missionaries, it's for every Christian. And so we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching as well by reading the scriptures, by listening to gospel preaching. Okay, so the second building block of the church is in-depth community. This is really what the word fellowship means. Fellowship is more than just hanging out over coffee and donuts or granola bars, talking about the weather, talking about football. Fellowship, in the New Testament sense, is really about sharing life together. This is what we do in our community groups. We give a place for, for where everybody knows your name and where you can know and be known at a deeper level. Because there are no lone rangers in the Christian life. We all need brothers and sisters to help us to live it out because it is hard enough on our own. So in-depth community. Now the third building block of the church is worship. And the last two things in verse 42, I believe, have to do with worship. And some translations say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and then breaking bread and prayer. But in the original Greek, there are actually a, a few, there are three different definite articles in there. And so the best translation is that they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. What's the difference? Well, breaking of bread sounds like it could be just eating together, but probably in this context, it probably connotes communion, the breaking of the loaf. And then the prayers certainly are about prayer, but also could probably mean something like the liturgy, the the worship, the order of service. But the bigger picture is that they are devoting themselves to regular worship together. What does that tent worship look like? Sometimes in homes, it was sometimes in the temple, but always, we're told in verse 46, with glad and generous hearts. I love what John Stott says. Every worship service should be a joyful celebration of the mighty acts of God through Jesus Christ. It is right in public worship to be dignified. It is unforgivable to be dull. You should worship with glad and generous hearts. So teaching, fellowship, worship. And the fourth building block, and the final one, is that four-letter word, evangelism. Okay, it's more than four letters. But for some of us, It evokes a lot of shame and guilt. If you're like me, you were trained that evangelism depended on you and you had to do it one-on-one and you had to press people to make a decision and that was tough. But let me ask you this question. Based on what we've seen in the book of Acts so far, and if you've read the whole book, 
what does evangelism look like in the early church? Well, it looks principally like two things. We see a lot of the apostles preaching, right? So it looks like they're preaching. And then this intriguing community of the church and its effect on the outside. Verse 46 and 47 again. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They had favor with the people. See, sometimes believing leads to belonging, right? Someone hears the gospel and they, they are saved and then they become a part of the church. But sometimes belonging happens before believing. Sometimes people get into this thing we call the church. And if they see this irresistible love and fellowship that's going on, they are drawn to belonging to the church even before they have fully understood or committed to Christ and the gospel. Sometimes belonging comes before believing. On the other hand, sometimes believers want nothing to do with the church. Not because they're not attracted to Jesus, but because they see dead churches. Famously, Mahatma Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. May it not be so for us. May we become like our Savior, who was a servant, humble, loving servant. And may we become like the early church in knowing what our job is, learning the Scriptures, loving one another deeply, worshiping God with joy, and not keeping it to ourselves, always looking to add to our number those who are being saved. But remember, too, that evangelism is primarily God's work. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, God uses us in people's lives. But ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord, whom we ought to pray for salvation to. And we also hear, hear that salvation and church membership go together. We see God does not add people to the roles of the church without saving them, but he also doesn't save them without adding them to the church. Those go together, salvation and the church. And so verse 42 and 47 tell us what the main work of the church is, those building blocks. But verse 44 and 45 tell us about a very unique feature of the church and unique part of its fellowship. It's often been misunderstood, and that is the sharing of resources among believers. Look at verses 44 and 45 again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now what we need to see here is that Christian community is about heart attitude, not political system, okay? Because there certainly have some who have argued that this passage implies that Christians should essentially be God-fearing communists. Uh, but 
communism is really based on the idea of a classless system in which everything is owned communally and private property is property is basically non-existent with the government overseeing it and enforcing it. But that's not what we see here, is it? We don't see government involvement for one. And notice that no one is compelled to give their property. They give it with glad and generous hearts. They give from the heart. And we see that private property is not done away with. In verse 46, they were meeting, breaking bread in their homes which meant they still, some people still owned homes. So the implication is that what they're giving away is what they don't need, right? Property and things that they don't need, they're giving it away for those who need it. They're living simple lives so that they can give to those in need. This is beautiful, isn't it? This is beautiful when people are moved by the love of God, and their neighbors to give willingly, even sacrificially, to meet the needs of less, those less fortunate. And the genius of uh, the Christian community is that it, it can thrive in any country, in any system. Right? It can thrive in uh, hostile, atheist, communist places like China, where the underground church is multiplying despite persecution. And it can thrive in capitalist countries like America where we can amass great wealth. But no matter where we live, we should take a care of one another. Those who work hard and are able to make, make ends meet and have more should share with those who are working hard and not able to make ends meet. Now, I believe we at River Oaks were doing this. We were practicing this kind of community. I ran the numbers recently, and from 2012 to 2021, a full decade, uh, the deacons dispersed $332,000 through the Benevolence Fund. And that is only what was given through the deacons. I know of, I've heard stories of people giving directly to other people in the church, paying for helping with adoption costs and medical costs and lawyer bills, not to mention the thousands of meals that have been given in Jesus' name. This is a heart attitude of having everything in common. If I have extra, I want to share it with you. But here's the thing. Two things have to happen in order for that kind of loving, sharing community to exist. The first is that the wealthy have to be willing to give of their excess. Now, this sounds easier, but it's actually harder than you think. Because oftentimes rich people did not get rich by being generous, which is why Jesus says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. Part of the problem also is that there is always something else to buy or invest in, isn't there? My mother and I have this conversation regularly. When she hears about, you know, some athlete signing a big contract for tens of millions of dollars, and she says, nobody needs that much money. You can't even spend that much money. To which I say, you may be right, no one needs that much money. Although if the athletes don't get it, the owners will have it. But can you spend that much money? Have you been to America? 
America specializes in creating new things for you to buy, right? You sign that contract, now you've got to buy the mansion. And then you've got to buy the fleet of sports cars to fill the eight-car garage. And then you have to buy the biggest up-to-date security system. And then you have to buy this, the vacation home. And, of course, now you need a private jet to get to the vacation home. And then you need a yacht to get away from all the travel between your homes. There's no lack. Listen, I am not condemning wealth. But if you have wealth without generosity, the Bible has many strong warnings for you. And it probably means that you are living for your kingdom here rather than for the kingdom of God. But the second thing that needs to happen to have this kind of loving, sharing community is that the needy have to be willing to ask and receive. Now, this is also harder to do than it sounds because we're Americans, and we've been taught to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to never have need help, right? I'll never forget my friend Blair, who was a deacon in a former church, and he would respond to anyone in need, constantly helping people in the church and in the community. But Blair also had ulcerative colitis, which put him into the hospital for extended stays at times. And during one of those extended stays, uh, we set up a schedule of, it was in the middle of the summer, and we set up a schedule of men to go over and mow his yard. And when I went and visited him in the hospital, and he found out what we were doing, he said, you don't have to do that. I'll get to it eventually. And I said, you know, brother, I know, first of all, that if this were someone else, you would be the first person on that sign-up list. But the other thing is that in order for them to exercise the gift of giving, you have to exercise the gift of receiving. Both the wealthy and the needy need to humble themselves and see God as their provider. And the church is a community where we have all things in common. I like what the early church father Chrysostom said about this early church community. He said, the poor man knew no shame, the rich knew no haughtiness. Why do we give at the end of the day? So that we'll feel good about ourselves? No. So that we'll make the economy run better? No. We give because we have been given to. Christian community is based on the sacrificial giving of the Trinity. Now, uh, I talked about earlier one of the uh, categories for community group trivia is contemporary Christian music. And growing up in the 80s and 90s, I learned some of my best and worst theology from contemporary Christian music. And if you grew up in an evangelical church and you're over at the age of, I don't know, 40, 45, you probably remember the singer Sandy Patty. For a while, she was in, as famous as Amy Grant, but not really. And, uh, but we had her Christmas album, and we'd play it every Christmas. And one of the songs on there was a song called The Gift Goes On. And the lyrics went like this. The Father gave the Son. The Son gave the Spirit. The Spirit gives us life so we can give the gift of love. 
Now some of you are going to sing that the rest of the day. You're welcome. But that's good theology. In fact, that's profound theology. The Father gave the Son. We learn that from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And then the Son gave his life on the cross so that we could be saved. I love the way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8. He puts it in monetary terms. He says this, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus had unfathomable wealth and glory in heaven, and yet he gave it all up to bring us out of our spiritual death, out of our spiritual poverty. I read recently that between 2019 and March of this year, uh, Mackenzie Scott gave over, away over $12 billion to a number of different nonprofit organizations. And that is fantastic. I've heard she says she wants to give away all of her wealth. Amazing. But it is nothing compared to what Jesus has given to us in the gospel. The Father gave the Son. The Son gave the Spirit. (laughs) Gave it at Pentecost. And in Peter's sermon earlier in Acts 2, he says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave us the most incredible gift you could ever receive the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of you, to be your teacher, your counselor, your guide, the one who intercedes for you before the throne of heaven. The Spirit gives us life and the love of God, the life of God, then flows through us to other people when we are living according to the Spirit. See, if you are not generous, it's probably because you don't, just don't recognize how much God has given to you. But the more you recognize how much you've been given, the more, and, and that God is your provider and your security, not your paycheck, not your bank account, not your retirement accounts. God is your provider and security. You will learn the joy of giving freely and sacrificially. Last thing. If you were God, how would you go about saving the world? Would you send angels down to to reveal themselves and tell everyone about heaven, about God? Would you... Maybe appear yourself to people in positions of power and influence and have them spread the word. That's not how God is working, is it? The New Testament tells us that God's plan may be counterintuitive, but it is simple. That his plan A to save the world is through the church. Through the work of the church. And guess what? There's no plan B. (laughs) That's his plan. And so it's our privilege, our joy, to be part of that plan, 
to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread into prayers, to adding daily those who are being saved. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing thing that you have called us to be your sons and daughters, that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place, to give us eternal life. And those gifts just keep giving. You've given us the Holy Spirit in all the riches in Christ Jesus. Father, may we gain a better awareness, a deeper appreciation for all that you have given us in the gospel. And may that then fill our hearts, overflow our cups, that it might overflow in acts of service and love and kindness to others. Thank you for your church as flawed, as terrible as we have acted as a church, yet you are still with us. And you say the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so we pray that you would use your church to be your instrument of salvation in the world. And we thank you that we get to be a part of it. Ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for you. We pray that you'd use our service. In the name of Jesus, we pray.